Hello and welcome to the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the best way to buy and learn about Bitcoin. I'm your host, Alex Danzig, and we're excited to announce that we're bringing the Cafe Bitcoin conversation from Twitter Spaces to you on this show, the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, Monday through Friday, every week. Join us as we speak to guests like Michael Saylor, Lynn Alden, Corey Clipston, Greg Foss, Tomer Strolight, and many others in the Bitcoin space. Also, be sure to hit that subscribe button. Make sure you get notifications when we launch a new episode. You can join us live on Twitter Spaces Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific and 10 a.m. Eastern every morning to become part of the conversation yourself. Thanks again. We look forward to bringing you the best Bitcoin content daily here on the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast. I'm almost done, Alex. But there's a lot of things that this new tech stack is going to incorporate into it, which includes communication. Noster is the is is this this is the people revolting against their exploiters, and Bitcoin is the way to do that. All right. So, um, what I want you to do is like think about for a second. <laughs> The brand new people who just came in here, they don't know anything about Bitcoin. It's the first thing they heard. <laughs> uh, it needs context. I don't know that we're going to be able to do it justice. What I would like to do is uh, just let it settle a bit. Um, J- Jacob's going to rip me the audio. I'm going to listen to it. Um, and then we'll come back and we'll discuss it again. Maybe, maybe next week. Today's Friday, last day of the week. There is a whole ton of topics that I did want to hit today, but we will we will certainly come back to this, Peter. So, Alex, if I can just say one other thing, it basically centers around this idea that there is a benefit to attack and a cost of attack. And as you become more prosperous, you become a you become something that is has the, the 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 balance changes as you become more prosperous it becomes more benefit there's more benefit in attacking you and the attack doesn't have to be in a physical way or or in a violent way it's just you know your data for example and so the only way you can defend yourself is by increasing the cost of that attack and we have been creating computers and systems that are that are cheaper lighter less cost cheaper lighter lighter less cost faster at the expense of our ability to protect ourselves against that attack or to project our power to do so and bitcoin because it is a bit watt um you know it's the conversion of the worldwide energy grid into bitcoins um is the way for individuals to be able to do that to protect themselves it's it's a it's a revolutionary thing for us to be able to um, protect ourselves against our data exploitation wow it sure sounds like lowry came around to the bitcoin as a shield metaphor uh if that's right like bitcoin is too expensive to attack Right? Well, not, actually, if you if you attack. if you pay attention to the arc of what he's talked about, it's not that this he's come around to it just now. It, he's he was talking about that a long, long time ago. Like if you if you understand, like so, he is a military dude. He thinks of these. He thinks of things from a military paradigm. Weapons are both offensive and defensive. He was talking about this a long, long time ago. 
You know, there are weapons that are designed specifically for offensive purposes, and there are weapons that are designed specifically for defensive purposes. And they both have a purpose in combat. And uh, there is a concept where if the defense is strong enough, it makes the calculus amount of energy and force and munitions and literally cost in human lives and equipment and expense not worth the the juice is not worth the squeeze there's this, it reminds me of this um i can't remember the name of it but there's an ancient city that's basically sitting on top of a mountain in the middle of the desert and uh, masada masada is it masada possibly okay. i'm going to have to go back and look but the idea here is, is that in order to conquer this city you basically have to march up this road that goes along the side of the city and the whole way going up the side of this mountain, they're basically bombing the shit out of you from the top of the city. And the cost involved in taking this city, in ancient times anyway, would have been way too freaking high. The juice is not worth the squeeze, is the point. And, and that's basically the mathematical calculus of value. This, I mean, the same is true in all, almost all sort of, what's the word? Uh, combative interactions with human beings it applies even e like you know what's a lawsuit it's a math equation right you're going to spend a certain amount of money on one side to try and basically get a certain result on the other side that's worth it is the juice worth the squeeze and the same is true for the for the defense right it's this this works all through through human culture the concept works all through human culture that's great, Alex. So I, I, and I and I don't mean to try to drive home a point that uh, that is distortive, because in a sense as well, if you have a powerful enough shield, you can move forward against someone who's your opponent, and you're protected by the shield. So that's how one can view a shield as an offensive force as well, because it protects yes. you. And, it becomes a deterrent. Right. Well, I mean, we can move forward in the face of so many things that we couldn't move forward in the face of before Bitcoin because we have Bitcoin. So it is a shield. Yes. But it allows us to make for offensive forward progress against things that we couldn't progress against beforehand. And and it's a new it's an addition to the tech stack. It's a new it's a it's a it's a parallel tech stack is what it is, what he's kind of what he's saying. And look, you I know, completely is, agree with that. Yeah. yeah and that and is, it's just really amazing. Yeah. It's yeah, an evolutionary step function. Like the technologies yeah. in combination are introduced in a way that it changes everything from an evolutionary standpoint in human history. I think the, the really interesting part, which I don't know if you I haven't watched the the or listened to audio or watched the video of this most recent one, but he talks about Bitcoin being the base layer stack upon which basically all um, uh, like internet communication is built on in the future. So he kind of he sees it as like what he talks about in in, in the talk is how um, protocols have kind of built up in layers. Right. And then you have you have everything abstracted away at the top. And we've we've basically at this point in time, like most developers only worry about the top layer now because everything has been developed and worked on all the way back down to the base. And what he's kind of what his one of his theories is that Bitcoin is actually a new way of anchoring the base to reality and to like and having a physical cost associated with um 
with with having uh, uh, like sending you know change controls and stuff at the base layer of the whole programming stack. And so like this is the other thing that I think kind of blew my mind in this talk. This talk is crazy because it goes through so many different like it hits so many different points and angles of what he's trying to get at. And so like you your mind kind of gets blown over and over again. And it's hard to kind of digest it all and put it all together, the one big picture. But you just leave you leave it feeling like, I don't know, like you're like, what the fuck, man? I don't know. He's definitely a very smart guy. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Someone from Boston that Greg Foss was talking about? No, this is we're, – we're, we're discussing Jason Lowry's speech last night that was at this Bitcoin meetup in Boston. Yes, Greg Foss was there. It was okay, in, yeah, it was in, that, it was that's the Boston event Boston. that's Greg was. That's the Boston event Greg was talking about. Okay, just checking. So you guys all know, everybody in the audience knows I'm super bullish on Bitcoin. And I've been purchasing Bitcoin for quite some time and learning about Bitcoin for, for quite some time. Um, and you also know that I've said this before in this space. If you're in this space and you haven't bought Bitcoin yet, I don't know what to say, dude. You're fucking stupid. You're well, not going to win friends that way, Peter. I'm not trying to win friends. I'm HFSP. I'm, Okay, so I'm going to say that anybody that has purchased Bitcoin, that has learned about Bitcoin, if you listen to this speech and you don't go out and buy more Bitcoin immediately, I'm sorry. You're fucking stupid. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Can I just... We're going to come back to this Jason Lowry thing later. But I want to encourage Bitcoiners out there. Like, look, I get it. Like the, the maxi standpoint. This is why people say maxis are toxic, right? Because at some point... And I've watched Peter's evolution in this thing. At some point, Bitcoiners get to the get to the point where they're they're so convicted that it's like, if you haven't done the work to understand why, then it's like I don't have time to explain it to you, kind of thing. And what I want to encourage Max to do is take a deep breath, your patience muscles. The objective of this show is we're trying to orange pill the other, you know. The other 7 billion people on the planet, which means we reach people, which means in order to reach people, we have to be nice. You can't be just smashing people in the face and saying, have fun, staying poor jackass. But that doesn't work as well as well, if you, know, you actually go ahead. Yeah, You know what, though? Like Satoshi didn't set a very good example for us in this regard. Fair point. All right. But that's not his job. He, he built it all right. And we're like all benefiting from it. So. Well, sometimes, sometimes, fair. Alex, there's Listen, a sorry, I have sorry, to sorry, defend Satoshi anytime anybody offers even the slightest criticism. <laughs> and, and he said to a troll after going back and forth 50 times, if you, you know, if you don't understand, I don't have the time to explain it. He didn't say you're fucking stupid. <laughs> he, didn't, he, didn't, he didn't insult him, right? He, he, was, thinking it. he was thinking at it at the end of a conversation. Maybe, maybe. You know that troll was Dan Larimer, right? It's all right. We're well, getting deep in the weeds here. We we okay, have a lot of content. Just, just we have a lot say, of content to cover today. Okay, Alex, we got to move on. Alex, I just want to say that I am usually a voice of reason. I am usually, you know, someone who says, hey, you know, you got to do what you got to do. You got to stay solvent. So all these things I talk about that are very reasonable. I think sometimes when I turn complete maxi, it has some impact because it's like, wow, he's usually a pretty reasonable voice up there. And now suddenly he's just freaking out. What the hell? Battle it's Peter. Called being it's called Battle getting Peter. triggered. You just need to breathe. 
breathe. and oxidize exactly. all those hormones that are rushing to, from your Listen to the shaman. He knows what's yes. up. Breathe. To, and two, really quick, Alex, before you move on, uh, to what Tomer is saying, too, with the, the shield and, and to what Jason's saying as well. I mean, that was the kind of the ethos of the, of the spark. Just a, it was a shield of instead of encrypted energy, it was a shield of human energy, and that's largely how they fought. And and it was kind of a defensive posture. And obviously, everyone knows the three hundred story, and that's what it was. It was the wall of human energy, the wall of kinetic energy. And um, so it's really interesting, Tony, you bring that up because I think it's very uh, prescient timing. Yeah, and it works. I mean, there's plenty of examples of it throughout history. The, the the mountain fortress I was talking about is not the only example. Switzerland is like that. <clears throat> if I remember correctly, Switzerland hasn't been successfully invaded in something like 800 years. Why? Well, they they use the porcupine principle of defense. They just make it so goddamn painful that you don't want to go in there. You know, and I'm, without belaboring the point, they, they just think in a way that makes it not worth it. The juice is not worth the squeeze. You know, they have more than 14,000 pieces of artillery in the mountains aimed at their own country. Every every square inch of Switzerland is pre-gridded for artillery fire. They have um, aircraft facilities, hangars built into the mountains that are secret, that they could just open up these secret freaking doors, roll out fighter jets, and their, their highways double as runways. I mean, the way they think is just different. Every single, if you're an engineer, so first of all, everybody in Switzerland is also in the army. It's not optional. Like you, you're, you're everybody. Like they have, they all have um, military grade, fully automatic weapons in their homes. Every single public facility doubles as a, I don't know what they call it, but it's like a category three nuclear bomb shelter. Like under every library, under every fire station, under every public building. You understand? And then, um, like the engineers that they have. That if you're responsible for building a bridge in Switzerland that has a highway or a railway on it, you're also responsible simultaneously because your job is probably a combat engineer in the army to figure out where you need to plant the explosives in order, in order to blow that thing up. So if an enemy is trying to invade Switzerland, you can blow the bridge up. So I, I don't know how I got off on that rant. We need to move on. Go ahead, Peter. You know how they did that, Alex? They did that by exploiting resources from somewhere else and bringing those resources to them, creating that wealth and being able to do that for their community. And once again, this is something that Bitcoin is going to not it, – Bitcoin um, is the opt-out from that system. Okay. Uh Really quick, intro to the show. You're listening to Cafe Bitcoin. Good morning and welcome. We talk about how we do it every day. Uh, this is episode 259. Uh, thanks to all our supporters out on the podcasts. Uh, ready for some stats as Ant around. The Bitcoin impenetrable freedom force field level is at? Uh, 424. Oh, sorry. <laughs> 242.4 hash per second. Thank you, sir. I, I got you all riled up there for a second, right? Just like what? That'll still suffice. Not quite four hundred and change. Yeah, we're still good. <laughs> One year, three months from the having, you can buy five thousand five hundred forty-five sats per U.S. dollar, which means you haven't missed it. Ninety-one point seventy-one percent of the total supply of Bitcoin that will ever be mined in the history of the human race has already been mined. We're on our way. Uh, and lastly, 
uh, remember, if there are no fees, you are the product or eggs of liquidity. Okay, let's roll. Um, Tomer, I know there was something you wanted to talk about. There's there's something that you guys are working on. Let's cover that for a couple of minutes, and then I want to dive into our next topic. Okay, great. And I'll share it in the nest as soon as I'm done speaking. Uh, Hodlinot, who is being sued by Craig Wright uh, for slander and libel and all sorts of other truths that he actually did tell. Uh, he, he won his first court case, but it's not over. There's an appeal and there's a court case somewhere else. So a bunch of us are trying to raise some money for him by auctioning off an hour of our time. Myself, Knut Sven Holm, Gigi, and it's on the tip of my tongue. Somebody else is also doing it and many others plan to as well. Uh, so there's a site called Plebeian. Uh, where you can bid, uh, it's an auction site, you can bid on an hour of our time. Uh, we'll each spend an hour with, Worst time to be with cutting each out. winner uh, on whatever video platform they want. Yep. Oh, shoot. Am I you want to put a, put a link in the nest? I'll paraphrase. Uh, These guys are doing a promotion yeah. for helping raise money um, okay, for Hodlnot. Link will be in the nest. Tip NZ is involved. Tomer's involved. Gigi's involved. Who else? Canute. Canute. Oh, he was cutting out for me. Did you guys hear him? He he was he was all right for me. Okay, my bad. Cutting out for me pretty bad. Uh, okay, now he's cutting out. <laughs> I'll leave all him right. come back, but I can share. <clears throat> We're gonna keep rolling then. Uh Tomer, maybe you can come back and we'll we'll bring it back up. I want to say good morning to BTC Sessions, Ben. Good morning, brother. Sam Callahan, good morning. Lisa, good morning. Uh, Terrence. Okay. Morning, guys. Good morning. So next topic. I was feeling a little ornery yesterday, and I tweeted this thing out, and I said, um, Bitcoin is literally impossible to stop, which riled up a whole bunch of shit coiners. There was a whole bunch of responses in the thread, and... Um, what I would like to do, if you guys are cool with it, is I'd like to go through some of these responses and talk about them one at a time. Before I do that, I'm going to say, because I said, look, Bitcoin is literally impossible to stop. And the wording that I use, a bunch of people out, and I'm going to say this. Okay, fine. Public correction. Not impossible. But on a scale of probability so incredibly small, that getting hung up on the literally impossible wording is, in my opinion, is a flawed mental model. It's a flawed mental framework, and this is why. You can't live your life hung up and afraid of sub-zero 1% scenario probabilities, right? So this one guy is like, well, there's a, there is a non-zero probability that it could be stopped, and therefore it must be on your radar. Look, this is not an efficient or a practical way to think about the world. All right, you can't live your life that way. There's a non-zero probability that you could walk out your front door and a 747 wide-body aircraft could come plummeting out of the sky and smash you directly in the face. There is some percentage of chance above zero that that could occur, however tiny. Does this mean you should make your decisions about how to store your monetary energy that way? No, it does not mean that. So what I would like to do, if you guys are cool with it, is we'll dig through some of these things. Peter, go ahead. Uh, sorry, I just wanted to say I put a link in the nest to the to the Lowry speech. There was a I got about six messages asking for the link, so I figured there's probably other people that wanted to. Okay, cool. Link is in the nest. 
All right, so I'm going to ask some of you. We're going to do the crucible thing. Let's let's burn it, fry it, see if there makes any sense. Some people say that Bitcoin is stoppable because you could shut off the internet, you could shut off the electric grids, and therefore Bitcoin can't operate. Does anybody want to talk about this? Uh, go ahead, Tomer. Okay, I like to me. This is this is like saying dandelions are unstoppable if you black out the sky. I and, and stop every and stop photosynthesis from happening. It's about the only way to do it. And if we actually stop, cut off all electricity, and cut off the whole internet for the sake of it, and the least of your concerns is Bitcoin, because. Tell me nothing works. Like nobody's going to be accepting cash. It's making oh, me I'm going to try to find a totally different. Yeah, Tomer, I can't you. All right, we're going to go with Wicked. Tomer, let's see if we can get you in a better spot. Going on the line of thought of, of what Tomer was just saying, I mean, with dandelions, all right, we have dandelion seeds. So even if the sun did block out for years or decades and all the dandelions died, guess what we would do on the other side when the sun didn't get blocked out? we plant those fucking seeds and dandelions emerge again. Same thing would happen with Bitcoin. I have a copy of the blockchain. You have a copy of the blockchain. The internet goes down. Guess what we do when the internet comes back up? We fucking start up our nodes again and we sink. I mean, like, you can't kill this idea. So you'd literally have to not only shut down the internet, and then while it's shut down, you'd have to come knocking on all of our doors, destroy all of our hard drives and all of our nodes, and then, uh, you know, hope to God that you've got every single one. Ain't gonna happen. Uh, welcome up to Pubby and Gary Leland. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Does anybody else have any responses to this particular um, line of thinking? Just shut up. They'll shut off the internet or the grids. I don't understand the electricity. They're going to shut off the electricity on the whole planet. I mean, at one time. Um, yeah, that's that's I, the I proposal. I don't understand that at all. I don't yeah. understand that at all. Okay, well, yeah, let me give is, you. It can, it can happen naturally through a solar flare. So this is an actual possibility. But it is kind of like the airplane, you know, like uh, hitting you in the face when you walk out the house. It's possible, but we have bigger problems than Bitcoin. So it's just a I, silly argument. I guarantee you there is at least one Bitcoin node in a Faraday cage running on solar panels or running on, like, you know, something yep. that's off grid. I guarantee you that's, you know, so that, yep. that, there yep. you go. Boom. Still survives. Okay. So, so yeah. even if, even if we had total war, total global thermonuclear war, and all these knuckleheads decided to EMP strike every every energy grid on the planet, right? Just like what L Wicked said, it's it's there's going to be infrastructure that's protected by Faraday. Not to mention, there the, people have figured out how to um, at this point uh, transfer uh, Bitcoin with ham radio, bouncing it off the surface of the moon. There's there's Bitcoin nodes in orbit. You can transfer Bitcoin with a piece of paper. I mean, there's just so many reasons why that's, that's nonsense. Yeah. For Tomer's point, I mean, and, and the one that Gary made too, I mean, you, you get down that road. This is what happens with these fudsters. You get to a point where you rule everything out and it comes down to this like super apocalyptic event. Like, well, what happens if the sun crashes into earth? You know, I mean, yeah, these are like crazy things <laughs> that, that could happen, you know, and then it gets really technical and some people don't like to talk about it as solutions. But I mean, there are other solutions already in play, like Locomesh and other stuff that we've talked about. So, I mean, it, it's not the solution that people want. But the point is, like, 
it's going to take a little more than that. Yeah, what really I was just going to say, it's as stupid as, as uh, proposing anything and somebody just being like, well, what if I die? I mean, yeah, that would suck. <laughs> but like, what do you, what do you, what is that argument? It's a nothing argument. Stupid. All right. I think so we've we'll, crushed it. Let's move on. Hold, hold on a second, Alex. Can I, can I make a comment on this one last comment? Yes, go ahead. So it's kind of like the scene in the matrix. I think it's revolutions when he's talking, talking to the architect and the architect says, well, you know, we'll, we'll kill all of the humans and restart the matrix except for the, 49 that they keep or whatever that number is and neo looks at him and says well you can't do that you won't survive and the architect says we have we we even we have uh depths that we will go to to survive so my point is is that to shut off the internet to do this kind of thing is going to it's going to destroy the individuals that do it as well. And they have to be willing to get to a level of existence that is so far below what they are already accustomed to, what they already live, that it will never happen. It's like, it's like assured mutual destruction. That's an interesting point. Okay. Very good. Yeah. The, the, I, I just, quick point. Um, if that does happen, if what Tom Vase talks about, right, it naturally happens, you're going to want guns and ammo, not gold. Because, like, this is something that the gold bugs bring up all the time. It's pretty annoying. What if the internet goes out? What if there's no electricity? Well, bro, your gold won't help because no one can verify that your gold coins or gold bars are real or full of tungsten inside, right? And gold-plated or whatever, fake gold. So you really want guns and ammo at that point, which people should have anyway. <laughs> yeah, I always thought that under that scenario, bullets become currency. All yeah. right. Not everybody agrees with that, but that's okay. I mean, there's there's a valid point to all of that. Let's um let's keep rolling here. Uh the next item is the US government will just criminalize its use and then it's all over. Marijuana. Alcohol. Nigeria. China. El Salvador, how do you make a, a world a, a, a nation's uh, reserve currency illegal? Good luck with that. India, prisoner's dilemma. <laughs> I really like oh, that. Oh, China is the best example of all. It's there's like twenty percent of the hat still there. Also, China, Russia. And America. I love that. Yeah, exactly. I agree with that. China is the best example out of all of them. So, for those who don't know, China has already criminalized its use about fifteen times. They're still doing it. Also, if America makes it illegal, Russia will definitely make it legal and probably the other way around. Uh, like, because uh, uh, every, everything one country does, the other one's doing the complete opposite. So two points. <clears throat> if you're American and they criminalize it in the United States of America, first of all, yes, that will make your use of it illegal, but that won't stop the rest of the world. Exactly what Tone said, the, you know, what will end up happening is that America's enemies will embrace it. They'll use it. They'll be advantaged. Uh, they'll get all the advantages and America won't. The second thing is that'll not stop people from using it. All right. The marijuana thing, et cetera. But to the people's fears, I mean, in my mind, at least, I don't know what's going to happen. None of us do. But if that did happen and it was somehow like criminalized in the U.S., price would take a hit. Like in my mind, it's going to be hard. But guess what? It's going to like come back when all these other people start using, like you said. And then it's going to be like a quick jumping pad. It's almost like a death spiral for that to happen. 
So prisoner's dilemma. So I would actually push back on that narrative a bit. And like, even though, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, okay, price might take a hit initially, like you were saying, but if you look at any other place where it's been uh, you know, restricted or made illegal, price, at least locally, tends to actually surge afterwards or, or have a premium because of the associated risk with it. And so, I don't know, man, like, I feel like if you've got Bitcoin at that point and you haven't, you know, like turned it in, because if the government makes it legal, they're going to say, turn in all your Bitcoin. But if you don't, and then you got it, and you're sitting on it, I mean, there's going to be a pretty uh, substantial black market for Bitcoin in the United States at that point, And there's going to be paying premiums for it. All right, let's hit the next one. That's pretty good. Uh, so shitcoiners like to, in, in a thread like that, shitcoiners like to post, um, if you can imagine in your head, pie charts showing the percentage of um, <clears throat> sort of market share that the mining pools have. And they, they say, what the mining pools? You know, like in other words, the mining pools control it because these, one, these mining pools have a certain amount of the mining pool market share. You guys understand what I'm saying? So therefore, yeah, yeah. the whole thing's compromised. I, I'm back. Let me know if you can hear me. I can hear you. Rock and roll, okay. Tomer, go. Yeah. So the thing with a mining pool is uh, a mining pool is a, is a voluntarily joined and voluntarily departed from entity that smooths out payment rewards. It's like, it's like me saying, you know, I'm going to shovel some snow. Alex, you're going to shovel some snow and what rewards come from it will split the difference rather than, you know, I'll keep what I keep and you keep what you keep because we only get paid infrequently. People tend to join large mining pools for that reason, so that they get steady payments. They can leave at a moment's notice. They can switch at a moment's notice. The, the, what? Yes. Are the you trying to say these mining pools don't actually control the Bitcoin network? They don't. They don't. And and it's getting more and more decentralized on, on subtle technical points. But what really is important is, and, and Bitcoin's history shows this out, there was once a, a pool uh, called CEX, uh, and they ended up getting, I think it was over 33% of the network hash rate. And so instantly, as a result of that, and they encouraged people to do it, miners left that pool and joined other pools so that it wouldn't be the case that they could form block headers that might at some point be um, entail censorship or, or anything of that nature. Yeah, Tomer, there was one that hit 51%. So that, that was, was in that 2014. Was no, 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 I think it was Cash.io or something. Okay. All right, my memory's a little fuzzy on it. But but this is what happens. Like any time, you know, some, some pool might have slightly better payout or slightly, fast, slightly more efficient, something or other, a bunch of people get attracted to it. But the miners know, and again, this is a game theory, they know that if they do something that jeopardizes Bitcoin's integrity, they're damaging the thing that they're working to get paid in. So they immediately do the thing that will stop damaging it, which is to not get too concentrated with one pool or another. And they have the ability to do that because they own their own equipment and they simply point it at one pool or another or try to solo mine. So this is really not a concern. This is very different, though, from like delegated staking, which is what's happened in Ethereum, where people sent their Ethereum tokens to Coinbase or Lido or one of these other staking agents, and they can't get those coins back. Like it's that is a irreversible decision. 
especially since you can't unstake. And so now they don't have their keys, they don't have their coins, they're not deciding which tool is doing the representation of all the terms that they use in staking instead of mining. They get attestations and validations and all those kinds of things. And so it's, a, it's very fundamentally different. So when, when Bitcoiners say, look, 70% of all uh, Ethereum staking nodes are in the hands of Coinbase, Lido, and two others, that's actually true. And those are the entities making those decisions. It's not the case with Bitcoin mining pools at all. Yeah, Tomer's spot on, you know, I mean, people forget about this when they think about these mining pools, but the mining pools themselves, I mean, yeah, you're joining the pool because, you know, you're going to join like the biggest pool, whatever, the fastest, whatever, because you want to get your payout, like Tomer said, but the pools are competing like globally for your hash rate. They need that hash rate. And if the biggest pool fucks up, we're gone. Yeah. Yeah. Just to reiterate, the comparison between staking pools and mining pools is a false equivalency and demonstrates a misunderstanding of how Bitcoin mining works and the differences between the two. You know, the key point to understand is that mining pools aren't miners and don't, do not control the underlying ASIC machines and thus the underlying hash rate. Whereas in the proof of stake protocol, you know, these exchanges custody the underlying ETH. And so that's the big difference. And you actually saw this with the pooling mining pool when they froze withdrawals after experiencing liquidity issues recently. You know, after this action, pooling hash rate was cut in half, essentially overnight as a uh, Bitcoin miner shifted their hash rate elsewhere. And so that was, you know, this whole argument, it's not theoretical. It literally just happened. Uh, it's happened many times before. Um, and it's just uh, when people say these things, it just shows their, their ignorance when it comes to how Bitcoin mining works. All right. I think we've put that one to bed. Let's move on. Next one is, but five guys control the code. And 10 of them are on stage here right now. <laughs> because it, what do y'all want in it? I'll throw it in there real quick. Like, who decides what code? Anyone can write any code for Bitcoin. Who decides what code to run? Every single person who decides who runs a node, right? Uh, so someone can make a whole bunch of changes to the code. I ain't running it, and neither is anybody else here. So, like, the, which code gets run is decided by consensus. And it's a very lengthy process to figure, to try to make any change to something like the consensus code of Bitcoin. So, I mean, this is just the most extremely mistaken art, mistaken point of view, because it's not like, again, it's not like Bill Gates decides, oh, we're going to change this feature in Windows. His developers write it and then they release it. And you're forced to upgrade because they they break the old version of Windows somehow, or the old version is broken somehow. Wait, Bill Gates or Bill Gates or Vitalik? Yeah, so, Hold on. Yeah, well, I was going to go to Vitalik next, but I, I beat up on Ethereum with the last question. So, but it, it, this is the thing: like Ethereum breaks, like you can't run the last client of Ethereum before the most recent one because they broke it. That they changed the consensus algorithm, and they've done this at least a dozen times, probably two dozen times in the history of Ethereum. The consensus code of Bitcoin, first of all, we only soft fork it, which means it's always backwards compatible. But on top of that, we've only had two changes uh, in the form of soft forks since 2017. So it's not like five guys are willy-nilly changing the code left, right, and center. It, there's a huge discussion and a huge 
vetting process to suggest and make any changes at all to this. Are you all telling right, so, me that the mainstream flood that 30 people can change hashtag change the code is untrue? Oh my God. Yeah. So to be, to be clear, like just to answer the, the, I think the, the people are, some people are thinking about this there are a certain number of Bitcoin core developers. And I think the assumption is those guys control everything. And it's a, one thing that's super important to understand is anybody can change the code. You understand this is open source software, right? Like any, if you, anyone listening to this, you can get a copy of it. You can modify it. You can publish your version of it, but see the question then becomes who is going to use your version. And that's what Tomer was getting at. It's kind of like you create a, a, a monopoly board with new rules. You want everybody to come play with you and you say, Hey, my monopoly is better. And guess what? Nobody comes to play with you. You're that person at the party who's standing in the corner wishing you were dancing, but you're not. No one wants to play with you. That's the way it works. And that's the reason why you can't just change it. And that's the reason why just five people don't control it. Go ahead, Ben. I was just going to say, there's there's plenty of examples of um, Bitcoin core developers um, not wanting a particular thing to proliferate and it happening anyways. Like the BIP39 seed phrases were were fully not endorsed by Bitcoin core developers. It's like the standard now. If you don't have like a seed phrase, it like that's that's how basically everyone backs up their wallet nowadays. Um, the other example would be uh, during the block size war, um, the the user activated soft fork um, was not was was largely not condoned by Bitcoin core developers, but it was just dropped. Uh, out there by Shallon Fry, I think was the pseudonym. Um, but regardless, it was just put out there as a as an ultimatum for those that were pushing this B2X shit. And um, yeah, again, like users will do what they want to do. And if core developers were to do something that was perceived as detrimental to Bitcoin, people would not run that client. That's a really great point. All right, cool. I think we've cut that one. On we go. There's more, and we have to finish them all in the next 15 minutes. The next one is, it's too expensive. Buy my shitcoin instead. Unit bias. Sats. Sats, sats, sats. You can buy, you can buy 5,500 sats for a single dollar. Next. Peter. In this bull market, you can buy more sats for those dollars now when Bitcoin gets to whatever price it's going to get to in the future that is higher, you will be purchasing less sats. I would just suggest that you buy sats now. You don't even have to spend a dollar. You can buy a penny's worth on strike. You can buy 50, what, three sats for a penny, something like that. All right, we'll move on. Uh, the next one, two large, the two largest miners control over 50% of the network. Now, I don't think that's true. That's <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard anything in, even remote. It's a minor pool. Oh, they're, they're talking about next. the minor pools. All right, next. We already answered that one. Fine. Um, next one, this is really dumb, but I, I mean, we need to, I think, just take a second and address it. What if nobody wants to buy it, guys? I'll buy it. The buyers of last resort always. And if nobody wants to buy it, then nobody wants to buy it. The same could be set true of automobiles or airplane tickets or 
Eggs. If you feel like if you feel like this is dumbing you down, I'm, I apologize. I mean, these are really some of these are really dumb. But I Bitcoin mean, needs better critics. That's and my big criticism of Bitcoin is it doesn't. It has these are its critics. Can I? Yeah. I, I, I want to talk about something here. So, like, I think a lot of people they struggle because they see Bitcoin as something you buy. They see it as an investment, and what really changes your mind when you get orange pilled is you start to see bitcoin as just better money at least in my opinion and when you see it that way you don't worry about who's going to buy the bitcoin because you realize that everyone who's already orange pilled is just working for bitcoin right i mean you work for money you don't say who's gonna buy the dollars you just work for dollars everyone works exactly. for dollars and when, and the more people that get orange pilled which will happen because bitcoin is just better money and people like using better money. The more people that get orange build, the more people are going to work for Bitcoin. You don't have to sell them your Bitcoin. You know, you 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 can pay them in Bitcoin when they want to work for it. And there's going to be more and more people willing to work for Bitcoin the further on the adoption curve we get. Bobby, yeah, morning. yeah. Hey, morning, guys. Yeah, I mean, all, all great answers. Um, yeah, it's it's not sometimes you know I, I love that gradually then suddenly it's not that they're going to want to buy it they're going to have to buy it just to keep up I, I think something um, you know as we looked at the, the last three years now um, with not only the lockdowns but the, the financial tyranny um, and we, we're not forward looking enough sometimes especially you know the normies um, when when you see the CBDCs coming down um, when you see how eventually they're going to tie uh, your social credit score to that your carbon usage um, into uh, what you can buy and not buy, where you can shop. Um, I, I really do see this, this valid uh, extra use case of Bitcoin insofar of that that money system they have will be so controlled. And when you're allowed to buy only five pounds of steak per year, uh, yeah, I truly believe there will be a, a black market that grows up, a side economy. And guess what? The only thing that is going to work for them is something that can't be controlled by the government, which is Bitcoin. It's value outside the system. And I, I truly believe this. Hey, get, God forbid I want a gas stove. You know, of course, my CBDC won't let me buy one. But damn, I'm, I'm sure they'll take Bitcoin at that point. You know, you, they can, like you say, they, they can, um, you know, the runner knows everything is verified. It's hard capped. They know what they're getting. So, yeah, moving forward, Matt, I, I'm really curious to see the side economy develop here. I'm curious what you guys think. I mean, this is kind of off topic, but going on the line of gas stoves, like, I'm, I, I struggle with these ideas because in some ways, when you electrify everything, if you have off-grid power, then you actually are more independent than, like, if you're relying on, like, gas lines coming to your house or, you know, these types of things. So, like, there are, I think there's, like, there's these weird trajectories where you could electrify everything if you have, like, solar panels, and then you're actually in control of all your power. You know, like, thinking about having an electric car, assuming that the government can't just fucking shut it off. But, like, if you can charge that thing from your own solar panels, then you don't have to rely on, like, gas stations and that kind of thing. So, these like, there's these weird, like, kind of, you know, I don't know which way I want to go. You know what I'm trying to say? I do want yep. a gas stove, though. <laughs> Maybe I'll just have like one of those big gas tanks next to my house, like how everyone has those up north in Minnesota. I'm feeling the urge to buy a gas stove as well. Moving on. 
this other dude brings up this thing. Okay, there's a problem with Bitcoin because it has a single universal register. I guess he's talking about the blockchain is a problem. And by the way, he's like, you should buy XMR instead. What? Yes. <laughs> he's worried about he's worried about privacy. So you know, I mean like, hey, if you're worried about privacy, I don't know, man. Like fucking just wait for Fetty Mints. All right. It's gonna solve all your problems. Or just use liquid Bitcoin. Okay, really quick, in 30 seconds, explain why Fetty Mints solves privacy issues. Fedimus is going to use Chaumian signatures, which is just, it's a fancy word for blind signatures. It's basically a way for you to transact within the Mint without anybody knowing what you're doing. So the guardians of the Mint don't know. There's no on-chain footprint. There's nothing like that. And if these things work as advertised, which they're not out yet, so you know we have yet to see, right? But if they work as, if they work as advertised, then you should be able to have perfect privacy or near-perfect privacy within the Mint when you're transacting to one another. So I'm very excited for Fetty Mints because I'm imagining like, you know, like what if I get a bunch of people in my community to, you know, to, to basically come into like a, let's say like a Boston Fetty Mint and then everyone in Boston who's in this mint can fucking transact with near perfect privacy of one another and um, no one knows, right? Like we're, 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 we're trading shit and we're selling and buying shit in Bitcoin all within the mint. Nobody knows. It's all off chain, and it's all. In the, uh, it's all. It would all be within that mint. Um, I say near perfect privacy because you know, obviously, it's like if you got Uncle Jim coming in with like, you know, a hundred Bitcoin, <laughs> and then you got like some other person on the other side coming out with a hundred Bitcoin. It's like you know that's Uncle Jim. But like, you know, aside from that, it, it's it's pretty much perfect privacy. All right. Okay. Very good. I was just going to add one thing. Um, if if I'm not mistaken, mints can actually connect to each other via the Lightning Network as well. Yes, right. sir. Yep. That's, yep. All right, we're going to move on. If you want to know more about that, I mean, dig in. That's a, that's a pretty deep subject. We're not we don't have time to cover it all, so we're just going to keep rolling. The next one is China owns it and controls it all. El Mao, which is just I'm not even going to dig into that because it's stupid. It's ridiculous. It's not true. Just going to say that. I mean, so we're not even a, yeah. It's Shouldn't Terrence right. be the one that comments on this? This whole thing's stupid. Yeah, <laughs> Every I one of these be, things are terrible. I but the they're terrible, I know. But as the person who is actually Chinese and can speak on behalf of all of them. Um, so here's the bottom line is we do want more. I mean, as an American-born American, I want more Americans and non-communists uh, owning this stuff. So the Chinese government is probably buying a lot of it, Russia too. So that's why, in my opinion, someone like Jason Lari, right? And yeah, they don't, they banned it. They own a lot of it, but a lot of it is owned by people in the U.S. And that doesn't really matter because what really matters is the nose. Economic majority does affect things, right? Does affect quote unquote social consensus. But it's really people who run and operate nice. Okay, I'm going to ask just for everybody, just stay with us. Look, I know this is trying some of your patience. If you're Bitcoiners, some of this stuff is the stupidest crap ever. It's really not worth it in many ways. And it's kind of like very elementary. But understand, these are actual responses, right? So people are actually thinking these things. Either they're doing that or they're just trolling, which is also possible. But 
if people are actually thinking these things, the purpose of this show is to try to overcome this stuff for all the people who aren't Bitcoiners yet. All right. Remember the mission. So patience, we ask the patience. Um, we're almost done with these. By the way, I want to shout out to Greg Foss, Dr. Jeff in the audience, also Joe Carlosari. We're going to be doing Swan Private Macro here uh, after the top of the hour. We'll be shuffling the stage a little bit. Uh, and I, you know, if you guys want to hang around for Swan Private and to talk about that with us, you're welcome to do so. Uh, before we hit the next couple of things here, Ben, did you want to talk about your show? When is the next one? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll drop a couple quick things here. Uh, one, if uh, people are looking to do some learning, uh, last week I dropped a video on how to actually create your own uh, seed phrase using nothing but dice and pen and paper. Um, I wouldn't recommend creating all your seed phrases that way, but it's a really cool learning tool to kind of see how your seed phrases are actually calculated just with simple math. Um, I've got a join market tutorial coming out uh, probably in the next day here, um, which is uh, like a, a jam client, which you download onto your existing node, whether it be start nine or umroll or whatever it may be. And then I've got, uh, I've got my, um, why are we bullish tonight? And that is at 6 p.m. Eastern time. And I have a uh, Bitcoin shooter, which is a great uh, filmmaker. If you haven't seen Comeback Country, uh, he put that one together. I also have Casey Hoddle. Uh, he runs the Kansas City Bitcoin meetup. And then I've got Final Denominator, uh, which is this guy's an accelerationist and uh, basically thinks that all of the shitty policies should just be encouraged so that it increases the likelihood of the collapse of current society so that Bitcoin can take over. <laughs> so those, those are the people that are on tonight, <laughs> 6 p.m. Eastern. All right, cool. Uh, also, don't uh, forget to catch Toxic Happy Hour with Pubby here later on today. They do that every single day. Their show on Twitter spaces that they do after hours, and they're freaking awesome. We love those guys. Um, Okay, last one to refute. Then we will maybe hit some announcements and start shifting the stage around for Swan Private Macro. The last one, I mean, there's a couple more, but this is, is important to hit. CBDCs will not allow the purchase of Bitcoin and will restrict capital flow to the asset. I mean, I think this is a genuine concern for people and it's it's a it's an important thing to uh, to talk about. Go ahead, Wicked. Yes, you're right. So you should probably get some Bitcoin right now before they fucking restrict you from getting any in the future. <laughs> I mean, like, come on. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, you, okay. So true. You're going to get locked in. You're going to get locked into your fucking shitty CBDC. So like, what are you doing? What are you doing now to protect yourself from that? Still other ways in that world. I mean, you, you have a skill. You can still accept Bitcoin for your work. You can, you know, still try to get it that way. You can still sell some stuff to people peer-to-peer. -peer. I mean, it's peer-to-peer -peer money. So, yes, that's probably going to happen if they implement their CBDC, which, guys, got to be clear. C their CBDC is not what you think it is. Like, that whole shit isn't going to scale. Blockchain won't scale to that to that level to what, they, what you think they're telling you is going to be a CBDC. It's just going to be the same shit that they have now with, like, with their – electronic digital money the point is 
They may lock you in. You may not be able to get Bitcoin. Better hurry up. But yeah, you could still earn it. I mean, you could buy. Okay, eggs. so the you could buy the, eggs. For those eggs on the secondary market for Bitcoin. I mean, you can do these like you know roundabout ways of. <laughs> you know what I'm saying eggs are eggs are they're a hot commodity right now, but like yeah, I mean you might not be able to buy it directly. You could be a uh, black market uh, stove dealer. <laughs> well, does it stop Bitcoin? Serious question. Serious question. Does do CBDCs stop Bitcoin? They enhance it. Yeah, what Wicked said. <laughs> explain that. I mean, for people who don't understand what you guys understand, explain why. Do you like steak? Do you like uh, yeah, eating steak more than once a month? Yeah, this like is exactly. Yeah, we were talking about this earlier. Yeah. Lands. Do you like going on vacation more than once a decade? I mean, all these restrictions are coming down the pike, and they're going to be easier to restrict with CBDCs. So if you like all those things, you're going to want to have freedom money. Yeah, just check out my sub-citizens thread, you know, go go look up on my profile, search 2140 data, sub-citizens, you'll see it. It's also that CBDC will um, coincide with them getting rid of physical cash, and then it'll be easier for people to see the difference between Bitcoin and CBDC, because all the cash will be digital. And this and goes so into a, oh, sorry, Terrence. Why it's so important to have something that's hard to hard to confiscate and hard to censor. Yeah, and this the CBDCs also are going to be. Remember, um, they've already started us down this road towards the UBI, our universal basic income. Uh, you're in a technology moving so far forward. You have a population with not enough jobs. Okay, um, you have mass production, but you don't have production by the masses. And what will happen? I mean, they just main mainline that into your bank account. Okay, and we'll start out with your your semi checks before they're slowly going to be able to put that up a little bit more. But they're getting this next generation used to a a, a lifestyle um, that is just lacking in everything we're used to. Um, international travel, hell, even domestic travel. They they shut down the airports just just what a day or two ago. Used to a life where you have have less than what we had, much less. And to do that, yeah, we're gonna, you know what? There's not enough jobs, but we're going to give you a $500 check every month. Okay, you get $500 or directly your up your CBDC straight, account, right? Yeah, absolutely. And then at that point, it's well, have you been a good little boy or girl? Um, what's your carbon footprint? Um, are you obeying the laws? And oh, by the way, um, we we have a timestamp on here, an expiration date. Um, if if you don't spend this by the end of the month. It's obvious that you didn't need it. So we're just going to take that back from you. It's, it's full and total control. And I'm already thinking about that with, with the gas, you know. Um, it's easier for them to uh, turn on and off electricity than those that can have gas. So guess what? Oh, you, you want to you wanna heat your food up? Okay, you want to heat up your bugs? Well, you're going you're gonna to listen to what we say. Yeah, your smart stove has uh, appears that you've been cooking too much beef this month. Your CBDC accounts have been reduced. Uh, Puppy brought up a really good point there, which, which you know, I, I think needs to be stressed even more. Is you won't be able to save with CBDCs, right? Or you only be able to save as much as they let you save, which is actually like that. That right there, like I mean, you know, 
steak is, is is delicious and i love steak but like you know limitations on how much you can save and prepare for the future is even more important than steak i mean steak's important but like you know saving for the future it's like that's like the most important thing right you actually have security and like you know peace of mind when you have savings and if you can't save i mean that fucks everything up so i think that point alone is actually really really important to drive home yeah some wild stuff all right so that wraps up the first hour of cafe bitcoin um we're going to start shuffling the stage a little bit in preparation for swan private macro i want to thank everybody who came up here today uh, really appreciate all you guys for, for participating in this. We had some really smart people up here today uh, sharing some views on these different things. Uh, quick announcements, and then we, uh, we'll start moving into Swan Private Macro. Quick question, quick question. Any chance you have time to get Joe for five minutes about the SEC versus uh, uh, Barry Silbert and DCG and Gemini stuff? Yep, we can lead into uh, Swan Private Macro today with that stuff if you want. I mean, I was kind of thinking maybe we should talk about that as well, but uh, yeah. All right, you're listening to Cafe Bitcoin. Good morning and welcome. If you've never been here before, this is, um, we do talk about Bitcoin. We do it every single day, Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific, uh, 10 a.m. Eastern. We roll for two hours. If you can't catch the live show on Twitter Spaces, you can catch it on Fountain, Spotify, and Apple. It is the place for your morning news. Preferred hangout for some of the smartest minds in the industry. Uh, what else? Swan app. There's a Swan app. You can get it on either app store, install, rate, and review if you like it. I like it. Uh, Swan IRA, this is a live thing now. If you have a Swan um, Bitcoin account, we can turn this on for you right now. DM me, DM any of the Swan guys, um, especially DM me. <laughs> Basically, the way it works is if you have a Swan account, you can, you, with one click, you can uh, set up an IRA. And uh, it's pretty amazing. You transfer rollover from an existing IRA account or uh, both Roth and traditional, et cetera. Uh, it's pretty awesome. Swan Advisor Services is live if you are in RIA or an FA or you have an RIA or an FA and they need a way to provide you with Bitcoin. Um, we can do that for you as well. Lastly, Pacific Bitcoin was the best Bitcoin event of the year. The next one is going to be October 5th and 6th. Next year's tickets you can buy at Pacific Bitcoin. 2023.com promo code cafe for a discount. Those are fully refundable to July 1st. I want to welcome up Mr. John Har. Good morning, John. Good morning, Alex, and good morning, everyone. Looking forward to continuing what we were chatting about yesterday, or yep. we could uh, get into some macro stuff as well. I'm, I'm down for whatever. You bet. All of the above. So, uh, John Har is with Swan Private, prior Goldman, 13 years, running fixed income, double-digit billion portfolios, very smart dude. Stephen Lubka, head of Swan Private. Uh, good morning, Stephen. What's up, Alex? What's up, everybody? Happy Friday. Happy to be here. He is also famous for walking in the sunlight simultaneously and thinking very deeply. Uh, he's a super chat. Uh, what else? Yep. Oh, posture. That was the other thing I want to mention. He has the best posture on the internet. Sam Callahan, uh, Dr. Sam Callahan. Good morning and welcome from Swan Research Team. We have Terrence from uh, Swan Private as well. We also have up here Tone Vase, Joe Carlos. And Greg Foss is in the audience and Jeff Ross is in the audience. We'd like you guys to come up if we can make room. All right. Over to you, Stephen and John. Yeah. 
So uh, I think a couple, couple eventful. I, I, let's start with um, let's start with the SEC. Um, we saw that the SEC recently charged Gemini and Genesis with uh, selling unregistered secure and registered securities offering. And this was on the Earn product, and this is the same Earn product that is uh, embroiled in the Genesis bankruptcy. Is caught up. We got about. I believe it's $900 million of customer funds that were uh, lent out through Genesis that are now, uh, you know, essentially there's a hole and haven't been paid back. And now the SEC has come over the top and, uh, you know, I, what looks like kind of locked the whole process down in a, in a, in a, in a, in a kind of a regulation uh, process. Uh, now, honestly, Terrence, now I actually have a question for you, um, if you know. Does the fact that the yeah. SEC has labeled this product an unregistered securities offering, does that mean it's going to take longer for Gemini Earn customers to get their money back? Or does that not really affect kind of repayment to them? Can you guys describe the product before, Sorry, before getting into that? Like, what is the Earn product? Yeah, so absolutely. I, I actually own some Earn, sadly. Um, so... Back when I was shitcoining and supporting an artist, I had to buy fucking Ethereum. I did it on Gemini, and then I had some extra Ethereum uh, lying around. So I was like, oh, fuck it. I'll convert some to Bitcoin. Then I was, it's still at Gemini. And I was like, oh, they have this 3.5% thing. I know, right? I know better. But it was like, just, I'll just try it, right? And lost money on it. Basically, it's an interest-bearing account. Uh, interest. You earn interest when you pledge your Bitcoin, which was sitting on Gemini, uh, this earned product, which is run by Genesis. And Genesis can, if you read the SEC complaint that I think Alex has posted uh, elsewhere, you can earn interest and then Gemini does what it wants to do with your Bitcoin or with your Ethereum, whatever you pledge. But and do we know what they do? Coins, we know what they were doing with it? Well, like, the, is there any details Genesis on what was, they did with that? They were, they were sending it to Genesis. The only thing they're doing with it. Yeah, it was just Genesis. Uh, Gemini yeah, yeah. just had so, a relationship with Genesis. Go straight to Genesis. Went, and Genesis uh, has uh, wide leeway in what they do with it. Yeah, and so you know what that looked like is lending to Three Arrows, lending to Alameda, lending exactly. to uh, you know parties in the space and that and oh, that's so kind of the, the way now i get it so now now gemini is pissed that they gave away their customers bitcoin yeah. to something yeah. that was complete and utter bullshit and now it's very silver's fault so so to give you some numbers on yeah. this guys the earn the earn program as alleged by the sec complaint it uh, consisted of 900 million in investor assets um, and that it was affected, I think, between 300, 400,000 Gemini customers. And they were they were given out right to Gemini almost primarily. There's one other institution that's alleged in the complaint, but it's it's 90 plus percent Gemini or Genesis. Excuse me. Um, and with that offering, OK, it is clearly a debt security. There is no doubt about it. And if you talk to even some more of the pro crypto lawyers in the space, I was you know, reading some stuff, Lex Node was posting, uh, Gabriel Shapiro, he's more like pro-crypto than, than pro-Bitcoin. Even even the most liberal viewpoints of, you know, the securities laws and more pro-crypto folks, they're saying this, this is not even close. 
Um, it was always from day one, anybody who knew this, anybody who knew the law, you're, this is a debt security. You are benefiting. You are earning your yield based on their selection of uh, potential creditors and their selection of institutional investors they want to lend out the money to. And that's where the yield comes from. So, you know, it's not this. Is, this was never a close call. Frankly, it was open and obvious posted out there. Um, and also the, the interesting wrinkle in it is that um, they were simultaneously, my understanding, was pursuing uh, through Reg D. Uh, the ability to offer this to accredited investors. So if they were smart and were not, you know, playing fast and loose, they could have offered the same product in a compliant way with the SEC through accredited investors, but that's not who they're catering to. Yeah, so Absolutely. because of that, Joe, yeah. am, I, am I correct to think that um, the, the investors, U.S. retail, they now have a private right of action because there was no S1, there was no correct, correct. offering. So by definition, you don't have adequate disclosure. You materially omitted or misstated information, kind of prima facie or by definition. Yeah, because, they, they have yeah. a private right action, but two things on that. Number one, uh, you know, they, if they were to file, if there were attorneys to file this mm -hmm. and the SEC is pursuing this, Typically, in those cases, there's a motion to stay the pri the private case, the private civil suit, while the SEC case is pending. So, you know, it's not like they could beat them to the courthouse. Sure, sure. But it's 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 you know it, this is this is uh, it's crazy that it took them so long when they were openly advertising this on their website. Like it's like right in plain day. This is what we're doing. Uh, when you signed the master services agreement with uh, Gemini, you agreed to have them uh, for the there's a master service agreement separately for the earn program. You agreed, you know, those terms and conditions everybody clicks through and does agreed. Um, they agreed to uh, give out your money and you waived all rights and you risked the total loss of your your assets. It's right in their agreement. Um, so it's obvious, like nothing was hidden. It was in plain day. Um, nothing can, you know, that they shouldn't been able to be detected and enforced by the SEC a year ago. Yeah. And that's, and so that, that's been one of my kind of critical complaints and to kind of tie it back into, I think the first question is this was so obviously so clearly a security. You are lending your assets to a third party in exchange for a financial return. It is incredibly textbook. And why did the SEC wait until all of the customer assets were like locked up in this bankruptcy issue or this debt issue? And um, did they did they just help or hurt retail investors? Right. So did the SEC by waiting till this had all blown up and then, you know, coming in to you know, regulate or, uh, you know, come after Gemini and Genesis, does that help or hurt retail investors? It of course is hurts retail investors. But to answer yeah. the, the, the primary question is why did they wait? And it's very simple. Um, and it's actually interesting uh, with the DOJ action now against SBF, we can relate it as well, is that logistically they are overwhelmed. There's too much to get their arms around. There aren't enough attorneys. There aren't enough investigators. Unless you all want to pay a bunch more taxes to hire, you know, SEC attorneys to go fight on fronts uh, across the board, they are logistically uh, outmatched. It's very practical. Um, there okay, is some so reporting from unnamed sources at the DOJ about the SBF cases that they are just simply overwhelmed at all the tentacles this has from campaign finance to, uh, you know, uh, because there's legitimate leads to follow up on that 
to uh, other wire fraud actions, other players, to the NFT community, people talking off the record saying like, this could result in hundreds of suits. Now, do they have thousands and thousands of lawyers that are going to take that? No, because they're not only focused on crypto. The DOJ has other priorities, as you know. And when you're a prosecutor, you have to prioritize. The same is true with you know regulatory departments like the SEC or CFTC. They have to prioritize. You have to go after the big fish. And in some cases, you go after the small little fish because they're just easy to put points on the board against people like Kim Kardashian rather than you know suing Coinbase. So I understand all that and it's easy to lose focus and be overwhelmed. What did the SEC do during that time when they could have gone after um, Gemini and Genesis instead of waiting and, until investors were harmed and lost money? Well, I think I'm just asking if anybody knows what they actually did that's uh, material that resulted in action. So allegedly they're their enforcement division was so busy, focused on other things and overwhelmed. What were they allegedly. doing? Outside? It's not allegedly. Okay. They, they, they were totally. They, so, so from so the what guys did they that accomplish. Yeah. Well, I'll tell not you, the, pursue, okay. the guys that the guys that uh, head up their crypto division, not only were there was their entire team consumed with assumed with SEC versus Ripple, but they brought in. Uh, SEC attorneys from other offices like Chicago and the West, uh, the Western states, to support them on SEC versus Ripple. That's how outmatched they are on one case. Okay, okay, one case. So this is Ripple's fault. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> no, it's probably the SEC's fault. They should have gone after Ripple before they had three billion dollars to fight the SEC. They they should have went after Ripple like back in 2012 and 13. Yeah. So, okay. So, this, so like. what I'm hearing now is this recent action does probably lock up retail customers' assets for longer than, like, I guess the question I'm asking, let's say that the Genesis hole got resolved tomorrow through some sort of cash infusion or something. Um, could retail get their money back or are they now stuck because of this? No, they get action? the money right back. If, if the money came back magically from Genesis, which doesn't have it, and it was in uh, it was in at uh, at Gemini, they get their money back. the The issue here of, of selling an unregistered security is usually the primary uh, penalty for that is disgorgement. So if they made profits, if, if if Gemini made profits from the sale of an unregistered security, they would likely have to pay a fine and just be disgorged of any profits. Okay, well, that's super helpful. Thank you. Yeah. So, so I think is the idea here, Joe, that they're they're both jointly and severally liable, meaning they're both liable, whoever can pay, pays, or whoever, you know, the court decides, uh, the judge decides, loses, and th that party, let's say it's Ge uh, Gemini that loses, then they can go after Genesis, but Genesis doesn't have to have any money, so. Sorry, go ahead. Hey, oh, try not to talk over each other, man. Tell him, he, Terrence wasn't finished, Sorry. let him finish. No, no, I was unmuted by accident. That's okay. So yeah, my, my question is, it sounds like Gemini is going to be holding the bag because Genesis is bankrupt and has no money. So maybe Genesis can pay 10 cents on the dollar. And then if Gemini has money to pay, they're going to have to pay the other 90 cents on the dollar or declare bankruptcy and give, you know, creditors like the people in the earn program, you know, some pro rata share. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
you know, their finances, I'm, I'm not sure I have a full grasp on what Gemini's finances are and how much they could, they could pay, but that, that is always the discussion in any settlement, right? Like the ability to pay is primary and it happens all the time in litigation. Um, but, you know, just to go back for a second, because I think it's really critical, um, you know, the, the SEC chair, Gary Gensler, says repeatedly, he says that I look around at these exchanges and I see uh, tons of unregistered securities, right? The vast majority of these things are unregistered securities. Okay, well, that begs the question, if that is true, then why aren't you filing enforcement actions against every major U.S. exchange for aiding and abetting the sale of unregistered securities? To your point about joint several liability, every single exchange that is selling a token that is uh, an unregistered security has liability for aiding and abetting that sale. It's right under the Exchange Act. So why haven't he done it? And the, and the real answer is logistics. They just can't fight on that, that many fronts, unless you all want to give more money to the government. Okay, I'll just chime in because I feel like it's worth making this comment. And I'm sure someone like Joe who understands the legal system is just going to say, my comment's unrealistic. So <laughs> I get that. But in cases like this, I mean, you could literally show the Investopedia page of the Howey test to a high school or middle school student and then sh tell them what Gemini Earn was doing or BlockFi or anyone. And I truly think they'd be able to figure out in five minutes that this is a security. So I just think it's maybe a problem with the system that making that case takes hundreds of lawyers and thousands of hours. And I, I think that is a problem in and of itself. Um, I know that's not going to be fixed by anyone here, but that seems like a huge issue to me. Yeah, well, the, the, what speaks to that is the, the issue of due process, right? And as much as the SEC likes to think that they can just say something is a security or not, um, they get it wrong, right? They're human beings. And I think that probably a lot of people in this room would respect the fact that you don't want a government bureaucrat to have the final say. You'd rather have your rights decided by a court of law where there's due process, where you get discovery, where you get to make arguments in front of a neutral, hopefully neutral judge that can decide what's BS and what's the law, right? So the problem is when you give people due process rights, and maybe it's not a problem, but it's just the, the reality, when you give someone a due process right to have discovery and have their fair day in court and have a lawyer and um, you know take depositions, all that bogs down the process. So you know, pick your poison. Would you rather have some bureaucrat and a judge go behind doors and just say, that's it, you're guilty? Or would you rather have a process? If you have a process, it's going to take a ton of time. And that's just, you know, that's just the way our system's set up, for better or for worse. Yeah, totally agree. I just, and I'm, I'm probably just being too idealistic here, but I, I yeah. just think the fact that all of us here can agree that this is like the most obvious security you could imagine, it's just unfortunate that it takes so much time and resources to quote unquote, prove that, I guess. But yeah, and that's there. why they want this. That's why Lummis and others were trying to do this fast track approach to get, you know, uh, or Hester Peirce or the SEC, she wants like a safe harbor where people could develop and create these things. But ultimately, um, if you do those things, if you pass like a crypto friendly bill, um, that's going to lead to shitcoin proliferation, in my opinion. It's not going to stop it. It's going to give them protection and cover. Um, so it's it really kind of it's a difficult public policy issue. Do you want them to clamp down hard and say nothing, or do you want them to come out and say, "Oh, we're going to make it easier. We're going to make this decided by a committee very quickly what is and isn't a security." And potentially that committee can be influenced. It can be bought. It can be affected uh, by the political process. And then you've got a whole bunch of these things out there that are really 
really unregistered securities under the old law, but they get a safe harbor and clearance under the new law. I don't know if that's a better system. Sam. Yeah. Um, I have some thoughts on this stuff. Um, it's just funny to me, first off, that this was an unregistered security of unregistered securities. It's like a layers and layers on top of these things, which is hysterical to me, these interest-bearing accounts. And then BlockFi paid a $100 million penalty of the exact same product. So I think this is why you saw the Winklevi start to lash out because there was a class action lawsuit that was filed a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, charging them for this basically the same thing that the, the SEC suing them for now. And I think they are starting to feel the pressure, starting to lash out, wanting to get a deal done to get out of the spotlight because this earn program was exactly the same thing as the BlockFi interest account. And that's the exact same thing of what Nexo was doing too when it cut its ties with the US. And obviously they had other reasons to be cut ties as well. Um, but the you know Gemini herded their clients into this earn program, collected an agent fee on the top, and then did, they didn't diversify the counterparty risk at all. Genesis and obviously didn't do the due diligence. They didn't have any other borrowers that they reached out to or anything. And so it's just insane to me that they did that. And I found out that they didn't even make a lot of money on it. It was all user acquisition strategy. So they took on all this regulatory and counterparty risk onto their platform. And they didn't even make that much money off of it. They just got new users that they hoarded in and now they're fucked. So it, the whole thing is just crazy to me. And then with the SEC, the SEC... I mean, say what you want about what I just said about Gemini, but they were a highly regulated U.S. exchange that tried to comply with regulations as best as they could. And here you have Gary Gensler cozying up with a you know, Ponzi scheme in the Bahamas with FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried. They met with them March uh, 23rd, then they met with FTX and IEX March 29th, and then they met with IEX in July. So they're cozying up trying to create a regulatory mode for it offshore unregulated Ponzi scheme. And then they turn around and do and sue a highly regulated US exchange in while their customers funds are frozen because their counterparty blew up. Like it's just, it's insane wow. to me that the SEC is doing this shit. That's an but interesting. It's warranted obviously, but it's just crazy. You know, the other irony is like what happened here with the earned product is literally why the SEC has these security rules. And uh, this is exactly why they exist. And now Gemini is angry that all the money was lost because they didn't follow those rules. So that's the other side of it. Not that I'm defending the SEC, but this is literally why these oh, laws yeah. exist. No, no, I totally understand. It's just the timing and, you know, it's like, it's very, Gary Gensler's just cringe right now. Like the guy should fucking resign. Um, for his allowing yeah. any of this stuff to happen, yeah. sitting on his floors, and then cozying up with FTX. Like, it's yeah, just, Sam, no, it's, it's disgusting. You know, for someone that understands uh, crypto and Bitcoin, as well as anyone speaking in the spaces, he has literally done everything wrong. It, it's really, it, 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 it's impressive, actually. What do you think he should have done? I think Wait, what you well, said earlier, wrong? Joe. For starters, he should have actually looked into FTX, uh, as we said, and uh, he should have immediately spoken out on Ethereum like he did in his lectures the moment he became uh, the SEC chair, because in his MIT lectures, he was talking about how Ethereum is a security, and then he goes to SEC, and he never corrects Hinman's statement. 
Yeah. And, and do a better job lobbying for resources, which I think he's capable of doing. But, you know, then that might hurt his ability to get a cushy job once he leaves the SEC to go into private practice or the private sector. It seems I like just... there's a real structural challenge if like, you know, in, in like, the, you know, and again, this probably is like a super rudimentary discussion for people who spend time in the legal system. But as somebody who's not a lawyer and hasn't spent a whole lot of time, you know, looking at law, it seems like there's a pretty structural tension where if you have a company like Ripple, that just by virtue of being large, like just right, for no other virtue than they've accumulated a lot of dollars and basically totally sideline the entire agency such that they can't even do basically anything else. Like, oh, wow, that's an issue. It, well, that's it. That's exactly it. So, you know, to Tone's point, uh, you know, Gary Gensler can come out every day and say Ethereum's a security, it's security, security. It doesn't change a damn thing. He needs to go out and file litigation. That's that's his mechanism. That's that's how he enforces SEC laws yep. and excuse me, in the United States laws. So they need to file actions. And I think they calculated very early on that their actions against the Ethereum Foundation and Ethereum developers are largely time barred. They can't really do a whole lot because so much time has passed. Uh, there's statutes and limitations on the law that don't give them ability to enforce actions after certain points which is very good if you're, you know, breaking the law, you know that you have certainty after a certain point that you can't get sued. Um, and with How long is that, Jeff? Well, it depends. So Sorry, I got a call. I was just going to say, you got a phone call, didn't you? <laughs> I have to calls whenever I, I'm on here, unfortunately. Um, I, and I got to go run in a second, but uh, usually it's five years. Um, so, you know, they, they missed deadlines uh, with the ETH ICO, and that was problematic. And, you know, we can deal with that. They also have issues uh, that they're facing similar in the, the fair notice defenses and the, uh, the, the Ripple case that's being advanced. We'll see if that sticks or not. That's a constitutional event saying it's too unclear securities laws, how it applied to these things. So you can't really constitutionally uh, affect these people uh, and, and, and go after them. But, but more practically, I think just to, to the point that was raised a moment ago, you know, Karen said about lobbying for efforts. If you go listen to his speech, he says the following, on a, like a rote basis. He always repeats that, no, we have sufficient powers under the law. We don't need any new laws from Congress. And he does that for self-serving reasons because he doesn't want to lose jurisdiction, have to give up stuff to CFTC. But he also says, but we do need new personnel. We do need more funding. He's constantly lobbying for new funding. And Congress has refused to give it to him. Um, so I think that from his standpoint, if he were really, truly trying to get ahead of this, he needs a quicker, faster enforcement mechanism uh, to go after these things. That's just the reality of it. He needs Congress to pass a law that makes it much harder for these exchanges in the United States. And you you shut off the capital routes uh, to these markets. That's the way to do it. But again, you've got people but, on the yeah. hill that will oppose that. They'll say, no, we want financial innovation. You know, this is... Cynthia, Lum Cynthia Lummis's of the world will fight for them and say, no, we want the crypto, quote unquote, crypto space to get uh, access to financial innovation and have we don't want to come down too hard on it. You know, a lot. This is the difference between Bitcoin and crypto. A lot of the, the people on the Hill are pro crypto. They're not pro Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, really quickly, I want to uh, mention this. Tomer dropped a very pithy thing into the cafe back channel, and he says the government will stop Bitcoin. This is back to the previous, um, 
you know, discussion. The government will stop Bitcoin. And his response is they can't even stop Ripple. So no. Uh, Puppy, what do you got? Yeah, I want to drop because I I love love this discussion and uh, Stephen was right on point um, talking about um, you know the, the government all cozy with FTX. I mean uh, you know aside from George Soros, um, you know SBF was like the second leading donor to the Democratic Party, and I, I agree with um, you know the whole thing. Maybe they're overmanned, but guess what? If the government um, is profiting from something, they're gonna they're they're gonna they're gonna talk to it. But damn, they're they're profiting from this. And second, any any chance they have to conflate this industry with Bitcoin? When you conflate all these scams with Bitcoin, um, that helps them in, in their fight against having Bitcoin. All right, when when the average person on the street hears, oh, guess what? Um, yeah, uh, this thing Luna went down, Celsius went down. FTX went down, all they're assuming is Bitcoin is a scam now, okay? It's just a big scam, you know, suppresses prices. Hell, who knows if they're, if they're stacking here? But I, I do think it's an important point. I mean, my God, uh, uh, you know, a, a fifth grader can see that none of these things pass the Howey test. How, how in God's good earth? I, I don't understand how in the hell they can't just shut this stuff down yet. They Trust me. If, if yeah. they were taking money from the government, if they were taking money from the government, they'd be shut down tomorrow. But no, if the government's profiting by them and also is conflating with Bitcoin as a scam, it's a win-win for them. Yeah, and I appreciate Joe's comments. I mean, obviously he's a lawyer and um, he understands this stuff pretty deeply. And so maybe it is just a logistical issue and maybe I'm being too critical of Gary, <laughs> but... I don't think so. I, I really don't think so. And you know, these interest-bearing accounts, I've always said that they look a lot like banks. And if you follow the SEC and all these developments over the years, um, like they've always talked about these things because the bankers are in their ears. They're like, hey, these, these folks are offering these interest rates way above what we can offer. And it makes no sense. They're acting like banks. They're not licensed like banks. And so it's not surprising to me that these interest-bearing accounts are the first ones getting chopped down. I mean, it was just super obvious to me. And, and they to that point, I kind of think that that's also why the SEC made the mistake of going after Ripple, one coin, instead of all these exchanges, because some of these banks were complaining that Ripple was trying to do a bank-like product and promoting their coin as you know, competitor to whatever. You know, they won't kind of think through like why. I'm just trying to think through why. Hold on. I'm just trying to think through why the SEC chose to go after one coin that had a lot of resources instead of going after exchanges, which also have resources, but they're also listing all these ridiculous, like tons and tons of coins. It's not just Ripple. It's all these other securities that are not registered either. All right, so this is awesome. I learned a lot um, on the legal side of some of these structures. I think let's hit a couple other topics, but uh, I think Joe dropped, but thank you so much. That was a, definitely an education on some of the intricacies of the legal system. Uh, so this week, besides the earn action, um, we got the CPI numbers, which were fairly uneventful. They were pretty much 
in line with the market sector, or at least analysts' expectations. And, you know, it's it's been part of a gradual moderating in the rate of change, the rate of increase of inflation. Uh, markets liked that. Markets rallied. Bitcoin rallied. Bitcoin, Bitcoin crossed 19 at one point. Um, love to see it. But, you know, I think the way it's I'm above viewing now. Oh, is it? Nice. Yeah, Lambo. It's above. Yep. Yep. Uh, Got to buy another Lambo. Um, so we're looking at, I wouldn't be surprised to see inflation continue to moderate in the first half of this year, but I don't think it's over. Um, and I think my current take is that we're looking at potentially a good, a nice environment, like first half of this year for both inflation cooling, growth being okay, not totally collapsing or something, and assets probably getting some relief from a horrible 2022. Um, that's kind of my bias here. Of course, you know, anything could happen, but um but coming at the second half of the year, you know, I'm wondering if inflation doesn't make a rebound, if for very other, for little other reason than simply the fact that like the Fed is having a paradoxical implication by hiking rates and suppressing inflation, they're suppressing high prices. And by restricting capital and suppressing high prices, they're making it, um, not they're 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 decreasing the incentive that producers have to invest in more production right so if you can't get you know capital and you know the price of oil is being kept down you're not going to invest you know 100 million dollars in producing more oil and ultimately this has a paradoxical implication of causing a rebound in inflation uh, because if there's actually a supply issue here and there's actually a lack of production or production has gone offline because of the war or supply chain issues, the only way to fix that is with more production. However, the Fed's levers, they can't influence that really. They can just kind of suppress demand. Um, so I kind of look at it as like the root drivers of part of this inflation. Obviously, there's a monetary creation side to it, not denying that, but there's also a supply side to it. And that's been relatively unaddressed. Nothing has been done there. And, um, you know, similarly, looking at the second half of the year, uh, it looks like a recession is still, you know, coming. Technically, you know, there's so much debate. Are we in a recession? Are we already in a recession? Blah, blah, blah. You know, bottom line is like growth has still been hanging on, at least by traditional metrics. And looking at those same traditional metrics at the very least, it looks like that may no longer be the case in the second half of this year. So that's kind of my read on the CPI numbers and some thoughts coming into 2023. John or Sam, what do you guys think? Yeah, happy to chime in unless, Foss, you wanted to respond to something specific there. I see your hand up. Well, hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Look, um, yeah, great commentary. Just to, we need to make sure people go through grade 11 math again, okay? Um, just because you've gone from 8% inflation down to 6.5% inflation, I don't think it's uh, warranted to bring out the confetti. You guys know that inflation compounds, okay? Just go, get an Excel spreadsheet and run annual inflation that goes from 8% to 6.5% to 4% to back to 2%, which is the Fed's target, and then 
plug in for the last couple of years how much negative or disinflation you're going to have to achieve in order to bring the five-year period back to a 2% inflation target over the five-year period. Guys, it's almost friggin' impossible, okay? Never forget that inflation compounds, and this is one of the problems with looking at the year-over-year uh, -year numbers and claiming victory, especially when you're a president who does, under, uh, does not understand grade 11 math, or if he is a president that understands grade 11 math, the fact that he can lie through his teeth that they're making progress on inflation is actually pr pretty disingenuous. So that's just one, uh, one comment there. And then the second one, and I mentioned this yesterday briefly, don't underestimate the impact of a weakening U.S. dollar on inflation and commodity inflation imported back into the USA. So just wanted to bang home those two points. I brought them up briefly yesterday, but this is not a celebration. Six and a half percent, just because it came in on the number, is not a celebration. Yes, it's going in the right direction, but my God, we're going to have to get to negative numbers pretty quickly over the next couple of years in order to bring the five-year adjusted weighted rate of inflation back down to the target. It's just not likely and very, very dangerous to talk like that. Thanks a lot. Craig, I got a quick question, man, um, because we're seeing things now with the CPI and, and how it's calculated. Have they, how, are they changing this calculation this month, next month, or when it comes up next? Well, they, they, they're allowed to, right? So, I mean, they've substituted, substituted hamburger in the equation for, you know, sirloin uh, steak uh, because they're allowed to. They've substituted, um, uh, you know, just quality of, uh, of uh, property, you know, uh, for owner's equivalent rent uh, and, and, and the like. So this is an age-old um, ability for them to change the CPI basket. Um, it's part of the, you know, green, green washing, or, sorry, gaslighting, if you will. Um, I, I, that's an age-old problem, Pubby. That's not my focus. My focus is even on the CPI basket as it exists, we are somehow celebrating a nominal decrease in the rate of change or the pace of change of inflation. Again, I just, I, I, I love you guys to go out there and plug five-year simple numbers into an Excel spreadsheet and then figure out the blended rate of inflation in years four and five that are going to have to compensate us for years one, two, and three at extremely elevated rates of inflation. So that's part of the fiat Ponzi. It's part of the fiat gaslighting in terms of saying, oh, well, you know, inflation this year was only 2% above last year. But yeah, 2% compounded annually for over time is an extremely high number. But it becomes extremely, extremely high when it's got 8% numbers uh, sprinkled in there. So you know, again, Excel spreadsheets are pretty wonderful things. And just go in there and play with the numbers and see what you're going to have to get and then realize, oh, yeah, well, that's why they're going to have to print money because QE infinity is the only thing that solves the fact that their debt spiral has accelerated at this point. So probably back to your question, uh, CPI numbers are just a mishmash of trying to uh, substitute different uh, uh, goods and services because people have to eat, yes, but they, they can now eat uh, uh, crappy hamburger versus before we had in there a, uh, you know, a, a, a high-protein uh, quality steak. Um, That's part of the game. Please, guys, listen to your Excel spreadsheet, not to your local politician. Thanks.
What I'm hearing, uh, Greg, we've got to create a CPI index designed specifically for Bitcoiners that has stake and other things that Bitcoiners like. Pants. Yeah, yeah, all that. So look, I'm going to step down, but 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 I I, I need to step down, fellas. I just wanted to give you a, a two second uh, yeah. soundbite on how brilliant Jason Lowry was last night in the in the in the Bitcoin uh, meetup in Boston. Uh, let me just tell you this, guys. I have, I learned more last night than I have in you know probably the last fifteen podcasts or anything I've listened to. This kid is off the charts brilliant, and Bitcoin is so much more than a monetary store of value. In fact, it could be the base layer of the entire internet within the next 10 years. And I'm not going to steal Jason Lowry's thunder, but oh my God, it's not Bitcoin, it's bit watts, it's bit energy, and it will revolutionize the entire power grid of the world and at the same time take away the power that the social media guys and the data miners in the social media area are currently uh, using to uh, control our habits and our beliefs. So I'm very bullish on Bitcoin. I'm more bullish on Bitcoiners. And Jason Lowry is a solid friggin' Bitcoiner. And so are the people who use it. So uh, thanks again for having me. I'm stepping down. And uh, Dr. Jeff, uh, look forward to seeing you uh, shortly because uh, there's so many opportunities within the Bitcoin ecosystem right now. It's just blowing my mind. Over and out. Thanks from Canada or thanks from Boston on behalf of Canada. See you, boys and girls. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's a good point there that Greg uh, brought up in that just because the CPI number starts going down, the, the, the number is the rate of increase uh, annualized. And then there's a month over month version. And so, like, it doesn't mean that prices went like the dollar actually went down. And that's important to understand. Like, you're still paying more. You're just paying less more. Um, you know, it's going up slower. And, you know, when you look at the inflation that's happened over the last few years, I mean, prices are going to stabilize permanently higher in in dollar terms, even if even if CPI went to zero percent tomorrow, um, we're we're basically just stuck at these very elevated prices. CPI would have to go negative uh, or at least like, you know, negative in certain baskets to see actual declines. And so. You know, definitely, you know, if you're hearing celebrating like this recent decline in the rate as if like, you know, it's over, it's done, we're all good again, you know, definitely misses the forest for the trees. So I, I, I wish Greg or I wish Greg would have stayed up a little bit longer, man, because he man, that, it, it was fantastic. He used to take what used to be the CPI in the early 80s and apply that um, to today's CPI. And man, that basket basket of goods and services uh, was quite different then, and we are rolling hot now. But before before even Volcker was there, then, uh, see, I, do you know um, much about Arthur Burns and and what he did in the seventies to adjust the CPI? I'm familiar, but why don't you say say a little bit on it for everybody else? Oh yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I don't. That's why I'm asking you. <laughs> You're the expert. No, listen. Uh, so yeah, Arthur Burns was was yeah. Look, he was a, he was a head man, and I think it, he was the first one to like remove energy, um, and, and things because he just wanted the number. And I was listening to there was a podcast with somebody that worked for him, 
And basically, he's he's this young kid, very smart. I forget where he ended up. And everyone's looking around the room when he announces this. Wait, what do you mean you're going to remove energy from CPI? Everyone's looking around the room, but he said no one will say anything because they knew their careers depended upon working there. No one said a damn thing about it. So it's amazing to me, CPI, how, how manipulated it is. And you just change it year to year. And so when you're seeing this 6.5%, rest assured, man, this is a 12, 15, 20. Look, we all, we all go to the store, man. We all see what our eggs are costing these days. So it's a perfect example of there's this thing called Goodhart's Law. And it basically says that any target, anything that you make into a target, like a numerical target, becomes gameable. And the moment it's just like, all right, our goal is to get this number into a certain place, people are going to start manipulating the number, not what it seeks to measure. And yeah, the history of this measure, I mean, it's crazy. I, I think that my favorite part probably is uh, the hedonic adjustment, I think is the craziest part to me. And so they literally uh, try to guess essentially how much of like a nominal price increase, so the dollars going up, should be considered to basically not be valid because the quality of the item has increased. And there's kind of a sort of logic here you can look at. And, you know, there's some specific cases where you could say, okay, maybe that has some some measure of, of, you know, kind of logic. But, you know, one of the ways it shows up is like, you, you have like a new Mustang, right? Or like a new car. And it costs a lot more today than it did in the 80s. It's, you know, tens of thousands of dollars more, 10 or 20,000, um, you know, bare minimum. And in the CPI, there's some of these cars that you, you look at it and it's this, there's been no CPI increase. It's basically treated as the price of the car hasn't gone up in nominal terms. And it's because, quote unquote, the car is much better. And, you know, if this was an optional vehicle, right, like if it was like, oh, this is the high end model and you don't have to buy it and it's better, you know, it's. Okay, but you can't buy the original basic model for the lower price. And so everyone is forced to buy the new, quote unquote, better model at the higher price. And so if you don't have the option to buy the older, like poor quality model, you know, it is it is inflation. It is practically functionally inflation but it's completely left out of the calculations. And that's that's the one to me, I think, has always struck me as being the craziest. I'm always happy to do a CPI bashing session, but I, I, I can add a few thoughts here. Um, what everything Stephen is saying makes me think of two words, which is subjective and arbitrary. And that is ultimately what you're going to find yourself uh, meeting anytime you try to come up with a quote-unquote legitimate CPI calculation you're going to realize that you make endless amounts of subjective and arbitrary decisions. So the one Steven highlighted is about quality. And I think that was all spot on. And then I would highlight two others. Uh, One is composition and one is weightings. So Steven covered quality, but then composition, when you're comparing it, especially over any multi-year time horizon, uh, certainly multi-decade time horizon, let's say, you know, the 1960s, just to pick a really obvious example, computers and cell phones did not exist. 
And today, most adults in the U.S. own multiple devices. So how do you compare a basket of consumer goods in 1960 with a basket of consumer goods in 2023 when two, two items that everybody owns exist in one basket and don't exist in the other? So any, any methodology you employ would be subjective and arbitrary. And then the third one I mentioned is the weightings. And, you know, what are the major categories and items in the CPI? Food, gasoline, electricity, uh, apparel, cars, medical care, alcohol, shelter, uh, airlines, et cetera, et cetera. The relative weight and importance of those items would differ completely from person to person. And they would even differ for you in your own life at, at different points in your life. You know, think about what would be the appropriate weights for you when you were 21 versus when you're 35 versus when you're 60, they're going to completely change. So, you know, what are the quote unquote right weights to use when, when distilling CPI into one number? Uh, there are none. It, it, it's, it's impossible to say because any weights you choose would be again, subjective and, and arbitrary. Uh, I've thought about doing a tweet thread on this. I got to organize my thoughts a little bit more, but yeah, I think the takeaway is presenting a singular metric that claims to show how aggregate consumer prices changed over time. You, you just can't get away from the fact that it's wildly subjective and arbitrary. Yeah, which is why from the get-go, the CPI has been argued about all the way back in the 1920s. 1940s, the CPI estimated that the cost of living was like 23% year over year. And then there was this report that came out from an independent researcher that looked at a bunch of stuff that said it was closer to 40. And there was a ton of union protests about it. So it's just funny because this has been going on for so long in terms of, you know, financial people bitching about the CPI <laughs> because it's such a bad metric. And uh, the thing that uh, some puppy was mentioning was just called shadowstats.com. I mean, anybody can go to it and with the 1990-based CPI. Um, if you measure it that way, it's at 10% year over year. If you measure it in the 1980s, it's at 14% year over year. And so they just continually change it. And you just saw the Bank of Japan do it. You just saw the Bank of Japan change its preferred inflation gauge from core CPI to core core CPI. Uh, never heard of that before. Right as CPI inflation reached 40-year highs, um, conveniently strips away food and energy costs. And so this is what they do. They just kind of change the metric or change what the basket does. And, um, you know, on and on we go. CPI is garbage. Sam, real quick on that, the shadow stats you mentioned. Uh, I had a coworker at Goldman who shadow stats. We were kind of aligned on some of our economic views. But he would, he was half jokingly, but he actually followed through with it. He would not go to shadow stats on his work computer because he was like, no, man, <laughs> they're monitoring me. They're going to see I'm looking <laughs> at shadow stats. I can't have that. It's funny. That's, that's really funny. Um, it's hard for me to feel as though it shouldn't, uh, like the goal shouldn't be to try to track like, I feel like the necessities, the things you have to buy should be weighted far more heavily than like optional items. I, I think that's very reasonable. I think, yeah, I think there's a lot of ways to come up with, uh, yeah, weightings would be its own thing. You know, composition over time would kind of be its own thing. But we're joking about steak before. 
But honestly, I think looking at the cost of a ribeye of equivalent ounces going back decades is probably a better indication of what uh, prices have done and how much the dollar's been devalued than looking at how the BLS has made their million subjective decisions about the basket as a whole. Like, try to look at goods that have not changed that much. And if the price has, you know, tripled or, or you know, gone up 5x, that's probably a better indication than them telling you, no, CPI was just 3% a year. But this is where, we, where education comes in, man. <laughs> once you can, once you can um, just like the guy that uh, came up with his credit card, all right, he goes into his bosses and said, credit card? This is back in the 70s. You know, there weren't many. And what happened then is you paid that thing off every single month. And then you get the smart guy that goes in, yo, boss, uh, look, if we put this out and say you can carry a balance at 2%, guess what? You're going to make an interest. So anytime you can extend um, limits, guess what, man? The, the price doesn't matter anymore. This is what happened to education. Um, at the time, man, back in the 70s, you could go to Harvard for like four or five grand a year, man. But once they found out, wait, we got loans we could do? We can kick this can down the road? Guess what, man? The prices will just skyrocket. This is what, this is what happened you know, back in the day. You could only get a 15-year loan for a house. Then at 30. Now there's 40. As long as you can extend those payments, the prices are just going to absolutely um, moon. Well, absolutely. And you're, you're, you're touching on a point, uh, John and I, John and Sim and I have been, uh, I think, talking about this pretty consistently for a while. Like you're talking about the impact that credit has on markets. And like specifically, I think there's a really interesting chart where you can kind of compare these industries like real estate or college degrees or college textbooks where, um, you know, or medical insurance to some degree, like where credit serves just like a foundational role in subsidizing demand and like financing people's purchase of these items. And you can compare that to, you know, areas where that's less of a factor, where there's, you know, obviously also less regulation and stuff. And, you know, it's the classic, like, tech has gone down and declined in price and like real estate and college degrees and textbooks and medical care have gone up. Like wh why have they gone up? Well, there's a few factors, but one of them is like you just said, we're, we're financing them with cheap credit. And it's not like, it's not like what that does is, Oh, we're just helping people afford these goods, right? We're, you're, you're inflating the prices of them and making it so people can only afford them with credit. And it's a, it's a, it's a really, it's a really lose, lose system. And it's like part of, I think uh, a pretty deep ideology in fiat kind of economics and in current economic thinking that, uh, you know, this sort of like subsidization and expansion of credit and that this is how growth happens. Uh, but I think there's some pretty questionable assumptions there. So I have a, I have a question or a kind of a comment sort of question to pose. Um, earlier we were talking about, and John, I think it was you who was saying, you know, any kindergartner can look at what's going on with Ripple and say, this is a security. Anybody, any, any, young, any person can look at it and say, that thing doesn't pass the Howie, Howie test. And um, inflation and CPI 
And this also touches on the idea that the fiat system is so based on complexity and we as humans like to gravitate towards complexity. I mean, can't we just dumb this down to when you print $10 trillion worth of currency worldwide in two years, your money's going to be worth less? Just as simple as that. So, um, John, maybe I'm going to jump in there for a sec and then if you want to give your spin. There's there's two sides to inflation. Um, and one of them is what you just said. You're absolutely right. It is. And this is the original definition of inflation. Like the word inflation comes from debasing the money supply, a.k.a. printing more money. And that is absolutely um half the story. I mean, at times it could be closer to 98% of the story, right? Like in Venezuela, it's 99% of the story. Um, but there is another factor and it is quite simply um, production, right? Like if uh, I, I gave an example in an article I wrote on this, if Saudi Arabia just like vanished tomorrow and all of their oil production disappeared, the price of oil is going to go up a lot. And that's going to kind of affect everything else. And you're going to see inflation. But there's a difference between those two qualities of inflation, uh, types of inflation. One of them is real. One of them is like a real free market. It reflects the realities of supply and demand. It reflects the realities of how much, how many resources we have. There's literally physically, tangibly less of the stuff we want. And so that stuff is more expensive. And that's a very different kind of inflation um, than this sort of arbitrary, artificial kind of uh, paper inflation where the prices of things are going up because you expanded the denominator. You like mathematically changed the number of units in the system. And so everything costs more units because there's the same amount of stuff. Um, and so it just there's those two pathways. All right, guys. So we're pretty much at the end of the show. Um, we're going to use that uh, incredible little segment there from Stephen as his closing comments. We're going to get some more closing comments from the panel, and then we're going to wrap the show. We're going to have to do it very fast, though, because we're pretty much at, at time. So I'd like to hear maybe – I know this is short, guys, but just you know, work with it. Tone, do you have like one minute? You want to give us a one-minute dump of your, of your thoughts right now? Then we'll go with Jeff. Uh, and then around the Swan private panel, and and we'll wrap. Uh, just real quick thoughts on the CPI. I mean, there's not much. What uh, Greg said is absolutely right. Uh, going from 8% to 6% is not going to change anything. Uh, people just have to realize it, this, doesn't cons this doesn't affect the consumer as much as people think. This affects the government the most. Government debt is going to implode at this rate. So this is just, you know... Uh, a quicker path to complete mayhem in the United States when uh, the U.S. federal debt hits 100 trillion, and it's going to be a lot sooner than later because of the compound interest. Uh, other than that, as far as the markets, uh, I'm, I mean, we blew past a potential area of resistance for a pullback. Uh, so now I think we're likely to go a little bit higher, maybe hit 20k, uh, and that is bigger resistance that we were going to deal with at 18 and a half. Uh, so that's the next area I'm eyeing right now. All right, Jeff Ross, uh, one to two minutes. 
thoughts? Yeah, We're sure. We're above 19K, yeah. bro. Sorry. Uh, yeah, right on. Uh, great discussion today. Uh, so totally unrelated to anything we're talking about, but because I, I got one minute. Uh, macro still looks ugly, but I would encourage people to look at uh, liquidity in the world and what's happening right now. And I would suggest that it possibly has bottomed, uh, at least for now, uh, when you look worldwide and even in the U.S., Net liquidity is basically trending sideways worldwide. Net liquidity is actually starting to creep higher. What's the best gauge of net liquidity? It's actually Bitcoin. Bitcoin absorbs liquidity. Uh, and uh, if you need a reason for optimism, uh, that's mine. And uh, even though I'm still kind of bearish on lots of fundamentals and earnings recessions and things like that, this net liquidity uh, deal is nothing to trifle with and um, keep watching Bitcoin. Bitcoin uh, could be going higher from here. And I agree with Tone. It could go higher. We may see some pullbacks, but um, uh, I'm cautiously optimistic. Interesting. Mm. Sam Callahan, closing comments. No, I don't got much. Uh, thanks for the comments, Jeff and Tone. Appreciate it. And um, yeah, I agree with Jeff too. I think the liquidity is important. The net liquidity keep track of that. But um, other than that, just uh, have a great weekend and great conversation. And thanks for listening. There's a, there's a couple uh bullhorns sprouting out of Dr. Bear's head. <laughs> it's like, what's yeah. going on here? Don't, don't tell anybody. This is just between us. <laughs> Steven posted the other day, created the other day, a chart. Um, which indicates that Pacific Bitcoin was the bottom and is the cause for this bull run that's occurring right now. I, I tend to agree with that. I think so. Yep. Which I called, I predicted on November 1st, I have, to, I have to tweet to prove it, that Pacific Bitcoin would mark the bottom. And so it was. In accordance with the prophecy. We're just kidding, by the way. Uh, John Har, closing comments? Yeah, I'll keep it quick. Um, just real quick response to what Peter said, which I think is an interesting point. Um, I would just point people uh, to, so the, the article that I put out about fixed supply money, it kind of hits on what Peter was getting at. There's this idea of different types of assets. There are the assets that we consume directly, and there are the assets we don't consume directly. And it's kind of clunky language, but money could be considered to be a non-consumable abstract asset. And I think Peter is spot on that it is as simple as saying that when you create more units of money, you dilute all the other people and you dilute the value of the existing money. So I, I do think we need to come back to that more often because that is just a simple reality. And people may claim, well, oh, we're going to do good things with the money. I'd say, OK, that's fine. But you're still diluting all the people who previously held the money. So I do think that is simple. It's something that is discussed in the article. Um, so I would point people there if they want to see more, um, but I'm sure we'll chat about this in the future. And then, yeah, everyone have a good weekend. Enjoyed the discussion today. And thanks for hanging out. You bet. Okay, Puppy, I see your hand. This better be good. Yeah. I, I, no, it's, listen, man, I, I love the Macro Fridays, man. I just said like a note to, to, to Stephen and John, man. John, I hope to see you in Naples uh, real soon. Man, great stuff. Always love this conversation. But hey, shout out to Dr. Jeff. Life lesson for people here. Man, he's been called Dr. Bear for a year now. And guess what? He was absolutely 100% right this past year. He took a beating. He took a beating, man. He showed up in spaces. Dr. Bear, how can you say Bitcoin's not going to be 200,000 this year? But Dr. Jeff shows up. He keeps all of us, all us bulls with all the hopium. He keeps us, he keeps us in line, man. So just wanted to say thanks to Dr. Jeff. And thanks, Alex, for always hosting a great space, man.
Awesome. Thank you, Bobby. All right, that's a wrap. You have been listening to Cafe Bitcoin, the place for your morning news, preferred hangout for some of the smartest minds in the industry. We do this every day, Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern, roll for two hours, talk about all things Bitcoin. If you can't catch the live show on Twitter Spaces, it is also a podcast on Fountain, Spotify, and Apple. Thanks to the Swan Bitcoin, the sponsor of this show. My crew, Ant Peters, that's for live producer Jacob. I'm your host, Alex Danzig, and I work with Swan. If you want to know more, shoot me a DM. I want to thank all the all the guys that came up here today, both this morning and for Swan Private Macro. Really appreciate everybody who comes on this show every single day. We get some great signal here, a lot of really smart people, lots of alpha. Uh, I appreciate you guys because this is what we call getting on the mission, teaching people about this bright orange future. I know, I mean, you guys take your personal time to do it, and I appreciate it. We don't pay any of these people, just so you know. All right. Love all you guys. Everybody go out there and have a great day today and crush it.